So I think a lot of us know the, the phrase old soul. You've heard that before? Old soul. It's used to describe a young person who has a certain quality of gravitas or maturity or seems older than their years. Now, I got called this with some frequency when I was a younger person. And I got to say, when I first heard this phrase, I absolutely loved it. Like, it made me feel high. You know, it was like this blessing, the sense that I was, I was older than I really was because I always aspired to be. But then I recognized there was a shadow side. There was an underside to being called an old soul because I wasn't old yet. Premature maturity is not maturity. Being called an old soul and not feeling old, not feeling mature, actually what that did started to make me feel like I was a failure for all those moments in which I didn't feel really old. And by the way, there's some research to back this up that praising kids for sort of static qualities, like calling them an old soul or saying you're really intelligent, is actually much less beneficial to them than praising them for their effort. Praising a child for their effort encourages them when they fail, as opposed to praising them for something that seems static. If they don't hit that mark, they can start to feel sort of lousy about themselves and feel like, well, maybe I am a failure or what I'm presenting to the world is not real. Seeming like an old soul before one's time is kind of like being able to read the language or read some of the words of a language without being fluent. It's kind of like how I was at my bar mitzvah. I mean, in my 13-year-old cracking voice, B'nai I mean, just really horrible stuff. It's such a terrible thing that they do. I, I enjoyed it. But it's a terrible thing at the same time, too. They do it to kids because it's so embarrassing. And, like, I, I, mean, I memorized my Torah portion, but I had no clue what those words meant. And, by the way, I remember on that bar mitzvah day after I was done, Ah, now I can enjoy and celebrate and party. I remember someone taking a picture of me and I was supposed to say those words. Today I am a man. I remember thinking to myself, I am so not a man. I'm barely a boy. <laughs> so being an old soul is not real maturity. I like what Edmund Freeman, a rabbi and a psychotherapist, said about the hallmark of maturity as he perceived it. It was the ability... To handle the differences between our feeling and our thinking and to be able to maintain connection to each, especially when we might feel a contrast between what we think and what we feel. For me, maturity begins here in this slide. Simple word. Halt. Some of you know that word, though, as an acronym. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Now, to make this a little bit more PG-13, the H can also stand for something else. Horny. <laughs> basic drives. And also, by the way, basically good drives. If you turn these negative things into their positive. Hungry, we need to be fed. We need nourishment to live. Angry, we want to be at peace. We want to be understood. Loneliness, we're social creatures. We need meaningful connections. Tiredness. We need to rest. Each of these words represents in their good form a kind of program for well-being and happiness in our lives. The issue is that at some point, and it very often is when we grow, when we start to understand how difficult it is, that each of these basic good drives gets frustrated. That's where the maturity piece comes in, because that's where we can learn to halt 
to stop when perhaps we are feeling hungry and ask ourselves, is that a legitimate hunger or am I just going to sit down because I'm hungry and cram food in my mouth because I'm actually trying to fill something deeper within me? Am I angry? Well, yes, sometimes anger is legitimate, sometimes illegitimate. But am I going to use that anger as a chance for self-righteousness or to explode at someone else? Or am I going to take a step back and say, how can I express that anger in a meaningful and deep way? Our great teacher Henry David Thoreau said that many of us are determined to be starved before we're even hungry. When we are starved before we're even hungry, we can't halt. We just have to go and feed ourselves immediately. And we can't take that step back and pause. Maturity, as I understand it, allows us when we are in one of these difficult emotional states to take that step back, take a breath, And ask ourselves, what is really going on here? It is one of the hallmarks of spiritual maturity. And at least in my life, it has come about through a lot of practice. A lot of blood and sweat and tears. To recognize that none of us, I think, ever cease having these afflictive or difficult emotions. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It is just knowing that these emotions don't have to rule us. They don't have to make us do things we otherwise would not do, make unhealthy, unwise decisions. That's the mature part. We can take that step back. This importance of how we deal with our emotional frustrations, that is what today's movie, today's first spirit flicks is all about. Now, if you've been around for a few summers, you know that spirit flicks used to be called spiritual cinema. And really what we're doing here is we're getting, if you'll show that next slide back to it, um, spirit flicks were getting right up to the edge of copyright infringement with Netflix. But, you know, and, and if we're going to be the congregation that's going to get sued for for infringing upon Netflix, I'm not sure, sure it's a bad thing. So spirit, spiritual cinema is now spirit flicks and bridesmaids is the first opportunity we're going to have this summer. It's a basic story. I really enjoyed the movie. It's very, very funny. I don't know how many of the rest of you have seen it. It's about a woman named Annie in her late 30s whose best friend named Lillian is getting married. And already Annie's life is kind of falling apart. She has lost a business that has been her dream profession. She's an incredibly, incredibly gifted pastry chef. But once her business failed, she won't even go in the kitchen anymore. She's alienated from her gift. This business has also meant a failure in her finances as well. And she's really struggling in that way. She is absolutely failing in her love life to call it that. She's dating, barely even dating a guy who's a complete cad and yet she sticks with him and she's wondering as the movie opens is she going to lose the one last final thing that she really counted on her best friend Lillian her best friend who could help her deal with all the difficulty in her life because Lillian isn't just getting married she's like raising her class status like five notches it seems and so Annie is afraid of being left behind entirely The movie reminded me of a song from which I took the title today's message. It's by a band named Blink-182 that some of you might know. Um, And actually, the title of it completely describes emotional frustration. The title of the song is Damn It. And this is how it goes, or parts of it at least. I'm not going to read you the parts with the real bad swear words in it. It writes, a day late, a buck short, I'm writing the report on losing and failing when I move I'm flailing now. 
And it'll happen once again. You'll turn to a friend, someone that understands, sees through your master plan. But everybody's gone, and I've been here for too long to face this on my own. Well, I guess this is growing up. A kind of despondent understanding of growing up. But that's exactly where Annie is. She has no idea where to turn or who to turn to that would be healthy. Now, this movie was produced by a guy named Judd Apatow. Some of you know he's had a string of hits over and over again, starting with The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And he's got a really winning formula in his movies, which is that you have something very, very sweet and you combine it with something really, really raunchy. If you don't like raunch, don't see this movie. But also, if you don't like sweet things, don't go see this movie. That's the Apatow pattern, and it works. And personally, I absolutely love this kind of movie. There's a deeper pattern here, though, in these Apatow movies as well, too, which is this. That people hit sometimes in their 20s and 30s and their 40s a developmental wall. And they can't find a way through. They can't find a way over. And ultimately, what heals them is a deep understanding that they need friends. That it is their friends, our friends, that help us see ourselves too to the other side when we cannot find our way there by ourselves. Now, one of the things I really liked about Bridesmaids is that, you know, turnabout, as they say, is fair play. There's been all kinds of sex comedies over the years, largely for men, that feature, if not a sexist representation of women, at least very one-dimensional representations of women. Here, the tables are turned. All the men in Bridesmaids are completely one-dimensional. They don't really matter. The guys here, they're just kind of background. And that's all right, because the story is about the women. And one of the things I really loved about this, how many of you are friends, uh, fans of Mad Men? You know, that amazing show that's on uh, AMC. Well, there's a, a character on that called Don Draper, and he's stylish, and he's corrupt, and he's fascinating. And he's played by the actor, John, uh, the actor John Hamm. Here, John Hamm plays the Don Draper character, that ad man from the 1960s, just without the intelligence, without the charm, without the style. So all you have left is the womanizing, and you really see how objectionable that is. One of the other things I love about this movie is a number of reviewers have pointed out is that uh, Kristen uh, Weig, one of the stars and one of the writers, and also uh, uh, Maya Rudolph, her best friend playing Lillian, are both from Saturday Night Live, both from SNL. And that the roots of SNL are really bound up with a really sexist understanding of comedy. That John Belushi was a, was a brilliant, brilliant comedian. But he was a brutal sexist. He took time to diminish and demean every other woman that he worked with on SNL back in the 70s. And that part of that shows up in movies that are made or not made. There really hasn't been a movie like Bridesmaids before, and it's just about to pass $100 million. So perhaps it's a way of overcoming some of that cultural sexism that says women can't be funny. It's a lie. Obviously, no, that's to be a lie. Well, this movie is incredibly funny. In one of my favorite scenes that really made me laugh till I almost cried and also is so cringeworthy... Annie shows up at the um, engagement party of Lillian, and it's incredibly ritzy, and she shows up in this car that barely makes its way there. It's spitting fumes, and the windows don't go up, and it won't even start for the valet who takes it from her. And she gets into this competitive uh, toasting scene with this person who wants to be Lillian's new friend, this incredibly glamorous woman named Helen who's so well put together and is sort of the anti-Annie. And at one point they, and this is so cringeworthy and so hysterical, they start singing together this unplanned duet of that's what friends are for. 
trying to prove to each other and to the entire crowd that they are really Annie's best friend. And then it sums up, it ends with this wonderful piece, this absolutely wonderful piece in which uh, Helen gets up, this glamorous woman, and says, Lillian and I, we have this unspoken bond, this wordless connection. And she elegantly strides off. And then Annie clumsily gets up there, grabs the mic, and just stares at everyone. And stares at her best friend to sort of demonstrate how wordless and profound their connection is. (laughs) Making a fool of herself. But there is something real in that moment and in this movie for Annie. It is the fear of loneliness. The fear of losing profound connection. Later on in the movie, after some very harsh and hard words and hard feelings between Annie and Lillian, and after it looks like their decades-long friendship since elementary school is going to come to a close, and they will walk away from each other with anger in their hearts, they reconcile, and they get really to the heart of the movie. One of them says to the other, I need you to do this first. I need you to go first, get married first, form an adult life first. So that you can come back and show me the way. This is what our best friends, our truly deep friends, can help us do. They can show us how to live. Not in a theoretical way, but in a demonstrated, in the midst of very life kind of way. I mean, Annie is barely hanging on at what can be one of the hardest times in life. If you've lived through it already or it's on the horizon for you. Or you're in the middle of it right now. That time in the 30s and the 40s that friendships start to be diminished. Especially, I think, sadly for a lot of guys, although increasingly for women I'm seeing. They can be packed away like stuffed animals, keepsakes from childhood that somehow don't serve a purpose any longer. Some friendships ease into being put into cold storage. They just kind of rust. But some other friendships rebel at being deprioritized. They refuse to be consigned only to the past. That is Annie's fear, and that's why she reacts so anxiously and angrily throughout the movie, as funny as it is, that she is losing the person that really she relies on to teach her how to live, how to be a person of substance. You see, at first she cannot handle her fear, and so she responds, reacts immaturely. She cannot halt. She cannot see that Lillian does not wish to cast her to the side. But still, Annie keeps acting with such anxiety, feeling that she is being marginalized and pushed out. And so Annie flames out because she's petrified of being alone. Annie speaks to a hunger that is real in our society right now. One of the things you see over and over and over again, if you study or take a look at these kinds of nationwide studies, starting with a book called Bowling Alone about a decade ago by a sociologist named Robert Putnam. And every year there's a little bit more data about it. That we as Americans are the loneliest we have ever been. We have fewer good friends to hang out with. Fewer people to grow a soul with. When we have fewer friends, we also have fewer role models and fewer mentors. And fewer people we can go to when we find ourselves hungry or horny or angry or lonely or tired and saying, I don't know how to handle this. Can you share this path with me? 
The issue also, and this is true for our whole society, and the implications are kind of scary, that people with fewer real, deep, substantive connections, they are more ripe to react badly or in damaging fashion when their own core instincts for happiness are frustrated. Where we have deep friends, especially spiritual friends, people with whom we share those core aspirations to grow and flourish and develop, we can be helped through and allow ourselves to be helped through these difficult, inevitable times when we all struggle and cannot see our way forward. Seeing this movie cemented something for me that I'm going to do probably next January or next February. It's going to be a message series called Halfway Through This Life. I am really aware right now in our society of all the challenges, all the blessings, and all the burdens of midlife. Now, the fact that I just turned 41 this past year means that I'm cluing into this a little bit. (laughs) Midlife has its crises and its difficulties, and it should. One of my favorite teachers is a guy named Richard Rohr, a contemplative and an activist. He's got a wonderful book called Falling Upward. A little too easily, and he admits this, he divides life into two halves. The first half in which we pay a lot of attention to the outward self and our accomplishments and getting things done. He says, though, if we really start to mature in the second part of our lives, we will do something different. Pay not so much attention to the container, but to what is inside the container. And he says the people who can do that most meaningfully, most maturely, are the people who have learned to fall upward. Because it is only people who, like in that song, have failed and flailed and understand that it is inevitable and we will all do that. And don't seek to run away from our failings or our flailings, but understand that it is those people who can fall and go upward into life simultaneously and truly accept themselves. Annie, in her grief for her loss of the person that she thought she would be, really has this most nagging fear that losing Lillian feels like the final confirmation. I mean, she lost a business in this recession. A lot of people have lost businesses or work or paychecks in this recession. It's been brutal for a lot of folks. But is Lillian The person that she goes to who reminds her that although she has failed, she is not a failure. It's really important to remind ourselves of that when we fail. Sometimes we take that leap right into that place. I am a failure. By the way, talk about judging ourselves statically. It's bad for kids. It's bad for us as adults. It is very different to say, however, we fail sometimes just as we succeed sometimes. Instead of turning away from this failure, we get the sense at the end of the movie that Annie is being able finally to say, this happened. I accept it. It's part of me. But I don't need to cover it up with shame. Freedom at midlife, true freedom at midlife, does not come by gazing into some crystal ball for a picture of our future. Freedom at midlife comes by looking through a clear glass, sometimes through bifocals. I'm not quite there yet, but I do find myself doing a lot of this these days. Our bodies change. We age. 
Freedom in midlife comes not gazing into that crystal ball, but gazing through the clearest lens that we can find at what our lives actually are and learning to accept ourselves. Claim all of our strengths, all of our flaws, all of our failings, all of our victories, everything that we are. And to also have amazing gratitude for the people who help us do exactly that. So at the end of the movie, I got a little sense of perhaps the most famous movie heroine that ever was. Dorothy. There's no place like home. Now, Annie and Lillian are going into a future in which home is not going to be the same thing. They've learned the deepest truth there is. That if we can go home again to our own hearts and to our own lives, then we will know what it is to be fully in this life. So I hope today for you that you can come home to yourself and that you can come home to the people who love you. And that you can be a home for them as well. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of homecoming. Spirit of compassion for the wholeness of our lives. For the ability to say that everything does belong. Let us turn our gaze, our vision, our perceptions to the reality of who we are and how we are this day. May we know that we are not alone. May we know that there is help that we can receive from our friends. If only we would let drop that persona or let go of our anxiety that says we've got everything buttoned down and it's all okay. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is not. Let us be at home in this life, however that home looks. Amen.